and welcome to Bioethical, the podcast where we question existing norms in medicine, science, and public health. Bioethical is hosted by me, Leah Pearson, and me, Sophie Jabert. Today, we wanted to welcome you to the podcast, tell you a little bit about us, and let you know what you can expect from our show. So, just to give a brief outline of where we're going, we're going to start by covering some logistics, and then we'll discuss briefly why we decided to start the podcast. And we'll conclude by telling you a little bit more about ourselves. But before we start, maybe we should just say like basics about who we are. So Leah, how did we meet? Sophie, we met seven years ago when we were both postback fellows at the NIH Department of Bioethics for two years. And then since that time, we've remained friends. We lived together for a minute. Uh, We've both been doing grad school in Boston for the past five years. And do you want to say what you study? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm getting a PhD in philosophy at MIT. What about you? I'm doing a medical degree at Harvard Medical School, and I'm doing my PhD in the Department of Global Health and Population at the Harvard PH Chan School of Public Health. Okay, so let's get to some logistics. Perfect. So Bioethical is going to be a podcast miniseries with 10 episodes in season one. On each episode, we're going to interview a philosopher, physician, or other academic on an issue in bioethics. So for example, in our first episode, which we're also releasing today, we're going to discuss with Robert Steele whether there should be risk limits for consenting participants who want to enroll in research studies. Right. And we've also recorded some other episodes. So we've recorded one on whether people should be able to access medical aid in dying for intractable mental illnesses. Also one on how we should allocate scarce medical resources one on what the goals are of teaching ethics to professional students, and also whether institutional review boards or the boards that review research to make sure it's ethical do more harm than good. We have some other episodes in the works as well. So if you want to be notified when we release new episodes, you can sign up to receive emails at our website, bioethical.com. And you can also subscribe to the podcast on normal podcasting platforms, It's super helpful to us if you can rate and review the podcast on those same platforms. Sophie, do you want to say a bit about who we envision the podcast being for? Yeah, so we think that you'll probably enjoy the podcast if you're interested in the topics that we discuss and if you want to engage with them in depth. The conversations that we're going to have will occur at a pretty high level and we'll really try to understand and engage meaningfully with the ideas that our guests share. Because of that, the episodes are going to be pretty long They'll be about 90 minutes per episode on average. But at the same time, we do want to keep them accessible to people without a background in bioethics. We'll try not to use any jargon, and we'll define terms as we go along. We also start every episode with some context and framing for the conversation. If we're ever assuming too much background knowledge, we would be really interested in hearing that feedback so that we can adjust, because we really do want the podcast to be accessible, even if you aren't a bioethicist. Why don't we talk a little bit about why we started the podcast and what we're hoping to achieve? Do you want to start, Leah? Yeah. So I think the first and most obvious thing is that we take issue with certain norms in medicine, science, and public health. And we wanted a platform to call attention to those norms and question them. Would you agree with that? Yes. I think that's reflected in the title of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in general, I think that it's fair to say that we're both pretty worried about paternalism and protectionism in bioethics. So what you might say is protecting people's interests at the expense of their autonomy. And this will come through in some of our early episodes with Robert Steele 
and Holly Fernandez-Lynch, where we question the pros and cons of research ethics oversight and specifically ask them a bunch of questions about the downsides of institutional review board systems and how we might be able to fix them. And I think that also comes through in our episode that we recorded with Marie Nicolini about medical aid and dying, because there are obviously lots of concerns there about whether refusing people medical aid and dying, which is the norm in most of the world, is paternalistic and whether and when that's justified. Right. So do you want to introduce our second goal? Yeah, for sure. So I think the second goal of the podcast is that we want to make bioethics discourse more accessible to an audience of non-bioethicists. In general, I think bioethics discourse happens at two main levels. So on the one hand, bioethicists will give sort of short quotes to journalists when they do articles on hot button ethical issues. And bioethicists also write op-eds. And, you know, in that format, you don't get a lot of words. And so the, the takes can be sort of hot takey. And this, this is a pretty shallow way to communicate complicated ethical ideas. On the other hand, you have detailed journal articles, which are often thousands of words long. And for totally understandable reasons, people who aren't bioethicists don't feel like reading them. So I think that one of the goals of the podcast is to sort of develop a middle level of discourse, deeper than an op-ed, but more shallow than a journal article where we can have conversations that are substantive, but accessible to non-bioethicists. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the other thing to note here is just that podcasts are a uniquely good medium for this, I think, because there's a lot of opportunity to ask follow-up questions, obviously, and to ask uh, for clarification or challenge people on what they say. And this is sort of what the journal system is supposed to be emulating, is a conversation. Someone will publish a journal article and then someone else will respond to it and so on. But it just takes place over the course of a really, really long time and requires people to be reading articles and journals. So we just think that podcasts are a good way to strike the balance because we can have the nuance and we can also have the follow-up conversation and debate, but it can happen more quickly and also in a more digestible format. Yeah, for sure. It, it's funny the thing about the journal system being a conversation because it literally takes years for like four exchanges. <laughs> I know. If you put the people in the same room, it would take like a couple of hours. <laughs> right. Anyways, um, I guess we should talk about our third and final goal, which is that we want to use this podcast to hopefully build bridges between different communities working on related issues. So for example, two communities that I would hope to bridge are the communities of bioethics and effective altruism. And do you want to say a little bit about what effective altruism is or? Um, yeah, um, I can. Social movement. <laughs> okay. Um, what is effective altruism? I feel like if I say anything that like yeah, I'm going to yeah, get like a bunch of critical DMs. But Just like for your mom. Okay, mom. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so the term of art is using evidence and reason to identify important problems and figure out how to solve them. And a lot of people who are annoyed with EAs for all sorts of perfectly legitimate reasons <laughs> are like, everyone's trying to do this, right? Like no one's like, yeah, screw evidence. Like, yeah, like we don't care about that. Like reason, like why? Um, no, like everybody cares about using evidence and reason. But I think one thing you can say for EAs is that there's a certain level of rigor and depth that they've really brought to trying to 
evaluate charities, identify important cause areas, figure out why we should act in certain ways, why we shouldn't do certain things. Um, And one of the reasons that I'm interested in the intersections between bioethics and EA is that there's sort of like a lot of overlapping topic areas. So like just to name a few, challenge trials, the IRB system, organ donations, global health, Pandemic prevention. Pandemic prevention, for sure. Priority setting. There's obviously like a lot of overlap between these sets of issues, but often like very little, you know, discourse across these groups. Like if you were to like create like a a diagram of which works are citing each other, it would just be like two independent clusters with very limited Mm -hmm. links between them. Yeah. And it just seems like this is kind of counterproductive to both movements to have these powerful communities that I think are genuinely trying to make the world a better place, working on the same issues in parallel and not engaging with each other's ideas. Um, And so I think some people might be skeptical of like, well, would these dialogues actually be productive if these groups really don't share a lot of the same values? But my reaction is that actually, I think bioethicists and EAs agree on a lot more than they disagree on. Um, And the cruxes of their disagreements are often fairly narrow and there's a lot of common ground. And I think if you could kind of leverage that common ground to figure out how we can actually make progress on certain policies, then potentially you could do a lot of good. Yeah. And this kind of builds on the nuance point, right? Because maybe part of why it seems like there's so much disagreement is that, you know, the overall views that get proclaimed in quotes or op-eds by bioethicists do look really different from what EAs might accept. Right. For sure. Um, I think another set of communities that we're interested in bridging is also the communities of philosophy and bioethics. Sophie, do you want to say a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, similarly, I have a foot in both of these communities. And I think that although it might seem like there are already strong bridges between philosophers and bioethicists, there is also some tension. I thought it was interesting. I was looking back at this uh, 2021 article by Jennifer Blumenthal-Barbie and her colleagues about the place of philosophy in bioethics today. And they mentioned a recent plenary session at a bioethics conference where I guess someone was making the claim that there's nothing philosophically interesting left to be done in bioethics and that the majority of work in bioethics just involves a simple application of existing principles. Right. Yeah. Like there are these four principles that bioethicists talk about, beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, and justice. and Yeah, for sure. A lot of people view bioethics as just applying those principles to all sorts of real world situations. And the idea here is like, it doesn't take a lot of philosophical skills or training to do that. And so I feel like, yeah, there's this perception in some circles that the heyday of philosophy in bioethics is over. Yeah. And I think the perception comes from both sides. Like at least some philosophers who aren't bioethicists look down on the field, frankly, And in part, I think this is because of a similar idea that what bioethicists are doing is a simple application of existing concepts or principles and that it doesn't really take philosophical skill. But one thing that I've noticed already during our interviews is how this just really doesn't seem true. Because with really any of the topics we've covered so far, we immediately get to these really fundamental questions about paternalism, the nature of rights, the nature of exploitation. Yeah, no. When we were talking with Marie Nicolini, who isn't a philosopher, about medical aid and dying, a lot of the places of disagreement that we identified between camps that disagree were deeply philosophical. 
And I think a lot of the sources of uncertainty that we identified for ourselves were as well, you know, they were about like, what does it mean for a disease to be incurable? What is incurability such that it's relevant to whether someone has a right to receive medical aid in dying? Yeah. And also questions like when we talk about suicide prevention, what is it that we really mean by suicide? What is it that we should mean? So I hope we'll build bridges just in the sense that we'll show these are really difficult questions and that they're not just difficult because it's really hard to apply theories to practical situations, but they're conceptually difficult in themselves and they raise questions that don't show up in the theories or concepts that are getting applied. Yeah. Okay. So this seems like a good place to transition to the last thing we wanted to talk about, which is ourselves. And Sophie, do you want to start by telling us what your research focuses on? Yeah, sure. So uh, like I said, I'm getting a PhD in philosophy. My research is in ethics and the philosophy of action and also in bioethics. And the way that ethics and the philosophy of action intersect for me is that I'm interested in the ethics of influencing people's behavior. So things like manipulation, paternalism, coercion, and on a very common way of thinking, what makes certain influences like manipulation and coercion wrong is that they prevent people from being the author of their own actions. So they sort of disrupt whatever this connection is that normally exists between us and our actions or between us and the psychological states that motivate us, in virtue of which our actions count as being our own. So in general, I'm skeptical of that way of thinking. I'm skeptical that the notion of autonomy in this action theory sense should play a big role in theories of our rights against things like manipulation and coercion. The way this intersects with bioethics is that, well, first, the reason I got interested in these questions in the first place had to do with work I was doing before grad school and before NIH in public health. I got interested in the ethics of health messaging and health policies that seek to change people's behavior. Since then, I've come to see that the sort of assumption I don't like about autonomy is operative in all kinds of debates in bioethics. And so I'm interested in what those debates would look like if we let go of that view. Do you want to say a little bit about what you work on? Yeah, for sure. So like I said, I'm doing my PhD in global health and my research focuses on ethical issues related to how we allocate scarce health resources. So I would say there's two main sets of issues I work on. The first is this question of what substantive criteria should be used to set priorities. So for example, if you're an organization that funds health research, what obligations do you have to future populations and how should you take those obligations into account in deciding, for example, what grants to fund given that disease burden changes over time? So if you have stronger obligations to people right now, then that would give you a reason to fund really different health research than if you're primarily trying to support people 20 or 50 or 100 years from now. The second thread in my research is about the processes that we use to allocate health resources. Um, specifically, I'm doing some work that is arguing that the goal of setting priorities is to achieve substantively just allocations of health resources and that we should design processes that achieve that goal, but that there's been this sort of trend in public health to care about the processes for the sake of the processes. And I am basically trying to argue that I think that's misguided. Nice. So clearly we come to these issues from different disciplinary backgrounds with different research interests and also with various different ethical commitments, I would say. I think that actually sets us up quite well to achieve the goals that we're trying to achieve because we can have a good 
balance of the practical and the philosophical. We did want to say a bit more about what else positions us to do this well, though we realized that as two women grad students, maybe we weren't going to be the best at doing this on behalf of ourselves. So we decided to just talk about what we think makes the other one qualified to do this podcast. Do you want to say a few words, Sophie? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, I'll start. Um, What makes Leah qualified to do this podcast? I did actually think about this this morning. So I think one thing that makes you qualified to do this is that you have a really good balance of two traits. You're very opinionated and you have strong values, but you're also very truth-seeking. And what I mean by that is basically that, you know, when you're doing research on a topic, you genuinely want to know what the true answer is. You're an extremely thorough researcher. You hold yourself to a very high standard. But at the same time, you're willing and brave enough to put out your opinions before you've sort of come to your absolute final opinion on this for the rest of your life, which I think is what being a researcher is about. Like you need to be sharing your opinions along the way or they're not going to improve and you're not going to make a difference. And so you're willing to sort of take people along on this journey of research where at various points, like they know what you're thinking about a particular issue and they come along with you as you develop your views. And I think that one thing I really like about my favorite podcasts is that they do this. You know, it's not like they have gone and done some research by themselves and now they're lecturing at me and telling me what they've learned. It really feels like they have a question they're interested in, they get me interested in the question, and then they bring me along with them as they learn from someone else about it. And you get to sort of see their research process. And I think that your traits just set you up really well to do this. Wow, that was so nice. Like, do you have notes on this? (laughs) (laughs) No. Okay, so here's what I would say about you. I would say that you have a trait that sort of pairs well here, which is that I think you're an incredibly charitable and thoughtful interlocutor. And I've noticed that, you know, in the conversations we've had over the last quarter of our lives, but also in the interviews we've done already, is that you're really good at just being meticulous in understanding the point that someone is trying to make. And you do that before, you know, jumping to conclusions about what they've said or trying to pass judgment on it. And I think that this is a fairly rare quality in the age of Twitter. And I think it's also going to be super helpful for one of our goals, which is to try to identify the more narrow issues that people often disagree on, even if they arrive at radically different policy proposals as a result of those disagreements. And I think that by identifying the cruxes of these disagreements, we can hopefully try to mitigate some of the polarization that often occurs when discussing controversial bioethical issues. The second thing I would say that you do really well is just like, you super know your stuff. Like, you have this level of depth in your philosophical knowledge about the issues that we are interviewing people about in this podcast, as well as like all these other issues that you work on that are sort of unrelated. And I think it's really rare and really, really helpful for what we're trying to do here, which is like, you know, I'm kind of bringing some breadth to the table, but you're bringing this just like amazing level of depth and rigor to the philosophical analysis that you do. Oh, wow. That was really nice. We should do this exercise more often. Yeah, right. Every time we hang out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I think we'll wrap things up there. Thanks for listening. And we hope that you will join us for the rest of our episodes this season. 
If you want to support us, the best way to do that is to subscribe, rate, and review our show wherever you get podcasts, and also to recommend it to a friend. You can also follow us on Twitter at Leah underscore Pearson and Sophie H. Jaber to be notified about new episodes. And you can sign up on our website, bioenethical.com, to receive emails when new episodes are released. We promise we won't spam you, but we may reach out to let you know about upcoming guests and give you the opportunity to submit questions. And finally, Bioenethical is written and edited by us, Leah Pearson and Sophie Jaber, with production by Audiolift. Our music is written by Nina Corey and performed by the band Social Skills. And we are supported by a grant from Amplify Creative Grants. Thanks for listening and for your support. And we really look forward to sharing these conversations with you. Thank you.